This episode is sponsored by Arbelos Films. Arbelos specializes in releasing 4K restorations of canon-expanding and critically celebrated arthouse cinema. Releases are available across arthouse streaming platforms and in deluxe special edition Blu-rays. Some of their most celebrated releases are Bellatar's iconic Satan Tango, Toshio Matsumoto's queer classic Funeral Parade of Roses, and Wendell B. Harris Jr.'s Sundance-winning Black American comedy Chameleon Street. You can find all their special edition Blu-rays on their online shop. And just for our listeners, you can use the promo code SCENEHERD for 15% off your first purchase. The link to the Arbelos online shop is in the show notes. Move over, my little pony. It's all about my little origami unicorn. This is Blade Runner. Origami unicorns <laughs> and tears in the rain. I'm envisioning a song. I'm envisioning a cereal. There's a, exactly. My Little Origami Unicorn is a cereal and Tears and Rain is, this. is he, the variant that you get for springtime. For sure. Picture <laughs> this. Taylor Swift songs. I don't know Taylor Swift. Origami. The, both of these could easily be the names of Taylor Swift songs. My Little or, Origami Unicorn? <laughs> no. Oh. Just Origami Unicorn, Tears and Rain. Those, like, perfect. Origami Unicorn would be in Lover. Tears and Rain would be in the album Folklore Evermore. That's my that's my hot take. Hey, everybody. Hey. Welcome to Seen and Heard. This is the podcast where two entertainment assistants go through the sight and sound top 100 greatest films of all time list. I'm Greg. I'm Jackie. And we are here this week ping-ponging on the list as we do from the top to the bottom. Uh, I don't know what number this is on the list. <laughs> do you want to know what number it is on the 2012 list or the 2022 list? Let's or hear both. Let's hear, the, let's hear the 2012 first. Okay, 2012 is number 69. Okay. 2022 is number 54. It rose, baby. It rose. Big boy. I'm surprised it rose. I'm not. Do you think it's because of the sequel? Uh, perhaps. The film is Blade Runner, by the way. <laughs> Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. That's um, interesting. I feel like every time we try and find a pattern of things that rise and fall, the only obvious things that, that fall are... The old classics. Old classics and things of people who have hence been under scrutiny, canceled, if you will. Um, I mean, Chinatown is still in the top 100. It's still pretty it high. Fell. It fell a little bit. I don't remember if it Didn't fell it that fell far. Did it? Didn't it fall a lot? I guess we'll have to go back and listen to our episode. In fact, I feel like it's not even on the top 100 anymore. No, we did it. No, we did it because it's we're going off. So oh, we go off right. the 2012 list. We're still, yes, if you, if you are new to the show, we're still going off the 2012 list because that's what we started on, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> and we will move over to 2022 when the time is right, yeah. uh, when we finish the 2012 list. It, but it's mostly just going to be filling in gaps because I think there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of crossover, yeah. which is why it's important to discuss the two different numbers yeah. that the movie holds. Absolutely. Um 54 is high. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> before we get into the film, Jackie, what have you been watching this last week? I did the thing. I went and saw Oppenheimer. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I did. Let's hear it. Um 
You can hear my thoughts in the previous episode. Yeah, you can. I mean, Barbie, Greater Sign, Oppenheimer. Agreed. I don't know. I'm not. I feel like maybe I'm just not into it, which is fine. <laughs> you cannot be into things. Like, there's a lot that's really good in the movie, obviously. But overall, I'm just not really interested in men sitting around and talking about science. I just am not. And then I felt that the two framing devices were like really excessive, especially the stuff with the Robert Downey Jr. character. I don't care about that man. And I don't really see his importance in the Oppenheimer story. A bunch of acronyms that I don't know what they stand for being blurted out 100 miles a minute. Low intense music over all the whole conversations. Thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so yeah, didn't love it as much as I loved Barbie. Is what I will say. This is the year of the unnecessary framing devices. With that, an asteroid city. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then I rewatched Summer with Monica because I was just down. Like I was like, you know what? I need like a chill short summer movie. It's not really a summer movie because it's in black and white, and it's like. I mean, I guess it is that are black and white can be <laughs> yeah. summer movies, but it's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, and then last night I watched Princess and the Frog hey. with my sister who loves to watch Disney movies and is 30 years old. Does that hold up? Oh, yeah. I love it. It's a great movie. I think it's really great. I saw um, that at midnight when it came out. I was really? that excited for it. <laughs> I Yeah. It was good then. It's great now. It's, Hand drawn. Yeah. Exactly. Is it the last one? Yeah. It's so great. Mm-hmm. What have you been watching? One movie. That's, That's it? it? Since yeah. Friday? Yeah. Because we're kind of recording this week. Yeah. Earlier, been, for sure. I had I had friends in town and I was kind of doing things. I've only... Well, besides Blade I'm Runner. Shocked. I watched Blade Runner, which we'll talk about in a that bit. That doesn't count. <laughs> but I Wait. Saw, I beat you? Oh, you beat me. Yeah. <gasps> and I thought I was had like only three movies. It was going to be nothing compared to you. I literally imagined this in my head. I'm like, it's going to pull out his letterbox. I'm going to have like 10 movies. No. And I have three. I watched Young Mr. Lincoln 2. <laughs> no, since You're I last saw you, I had friends in town. I spent time editing the last episode. And then I watched Blade Runner in this one other movie. What was the other movie? The other movie we're doing for Film Club, which I picked, uh, India Song. With oh. Delphine Seyrig. Oh, uh, Mar- love her. Marguerite Duras film, who, of course, wrote Last Year at Marion Bad and Hiroshima Mon Amour. So I was very excited to see this. Uh, I don't know. We haven't had the film club yet uh, where we're going to discuss this movie. But um, I was loving it until I was like just so put through the ringer by it. Mm. It's just it's It's a two-hour film of people kind of wandering through the French embassy in India. So like Marion Ben. Yes, and they don't talk. It's all you, the whole film, the narration is provided by different people, faceless people you hear talking, kind of commenting on the action, which is really cool. I loved it until I didn't. I don't know. It just, it ultimately felt a little tedious. I, I, I like the idea of it and I like some of it, but it was just a little, I don't know. That's it was a little much. Fine. <laughs> Worth watching, but I didn't like love it. It didn't like change my life or anything. I mean, crazy about last year at marion bend i don't either it's it's hiroshima for me that's yeah, the one hiroshima is amazing yeah well should we get into this week's film i guess so from 1982 this is ridley scott's blade runner
Blade Runner was released in 1982. It was directed by Ridley Scott, written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, based on the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Cinematography by Jordan Cronenweth and music by Vangelis. In the strange dystopian future of November 2019, humanity is exploring other planets and forming colonies by using labor from replicants, which are highly intelligent and human-like androids. Rick Deckard is a former Blade Runner, a police officer tasked with hunting down and killing illegal replicants on Earth. He is reassigned to the Force when a group of four replicants hijack a shuttle and escape to Los Angeles. The leader of the group, Roy Batty, is looking for a way to override the replicants' four-year lifespan. Deckard visits Tyrell Corporation, the biogenetics lab where replicants are created. There, he meets Rachel, a very convincing replicant. Tyrell has programmed Rachel with the real memories of his niece, and she's convinced that she's actually human. Meanwhile, Deckard kills one of the replicants, and Rachel, who has run away after learning the sad truth about her existence, kills another to save Deckard. The two fall in love, despite Rachel being wanted as a runaway replicant. Roy and the remaining replicant, Pris, use a lonely bioengineer to get to Tyrell, and Roy kills his maker after learning there is no cure to the lifespan they have been coded with. Decker finds out where they are hiding, kills Pris, and is hunted by Roy. Roy, feeling his lifespan come to an end, lets Deckard live, and he dies. Deckard returns home to get Rachel and run away before the other Blade Runners can find her, finding an origami token in the hallway, implying that his frenemy on the force, Gaff, has decided to let Rachel live. The couple escape the dark, dirty, densely populated metropolis for the countryside, riding off into the sunset as Deckard informs us through voiceover that Rachel was somehow not susceptible to the four-year lifespan. That is the ending for the theatrical version of the film. However, in the final cut released in 2007, this happy ending is omitted and the film ends with the couple fleeing Deckard's apartment. The director's cut too from 92 has the same ending. Yes. We will talk about all of that very soon. The film stars Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, Sean Young as Rachel, Rutger Hauer as Batty, Edward James Olmos as Gaff, M. Emmett Walsh as Bryant, the police chief, Daryl Hannah as Pris. The film also has a supporting cast of Joe Turkle, William Sanderson, James Hong, Joanna Cassidy, and Brian James. After the book was released in 1968, many Hollywood hopefuls quickly tried to obtain the rights to adapt it for the screen. Ultimately, Ridley Scott took the project on as a way to cope with the death of his brother after dropping out of Dune. Financial backing for the film fell through after $2.5 million had already been spent on pre-production. Eventually, the producer Michael Dealey managed to raise $21 million in apparently 10 days, thanks to a new three-way deal which included Sir Run Run Shaw, who is a famed Hong Kong philanthropist and producer. He's like this media mogul from Hong Kong that is responsible for like all of this. Yeah, the Shaw brothers. Yeah. Um, and so the film, and so the, (laughs) (laughs) and so the film became an American Hong Kong pre-production. I mean, co-production, co-production. And so the film became an American Hong Kong co-production. The author, Philip Dick, didn't approve of the script by Fancher, the first screenwriter, which is why David Peoples was brought on board. And although 
Philip Dick died shortly before the film was released. He approved of the new script and he was impressed by the special effects tests they showed him. He was also very impressed by Harrison Ford when he visited set. Who wouldn't be? I know. Choices for the casting of Deckard included basically any guy that was famous back then. Uh, Al Pacino, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman. And for a long time, it looked like it was going to be... Do you know who? No. Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> again. Just like again, again. yeah. Because <laughs> wait, what was the last film we did? Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver, yeah, yeah. Um, good old Dustin. Uh, but Spielberg sang Harrison Ford's praises because before this, he kind of had only done like Star Wars was his big Well, the first thing. two Star Wars he'd done before this and Raiders. But Raiders wasn't out when they were shooting this. So Spielberg oh, right, called 81. and said like, he did an incredible job on Raiders like you should hire him and that's how he got the job cool um the name was actually acquired from another unrelated novel called Blade Runner by Alan E. Norse it's unrelated has nothing to do with it but when the writer Fancher came across a treatment for the novel he really liked the name and so the producers acquired the name of this other random book (laughs) Um, yeah, because they didn't want to name this movie Do Androids Dream yeah. of Electric Sheep. Although I kind of like that. It's just a mouthful. Um, in the book, in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the replicants are actually just called androids. Uh, it was David Peoples who made up Replicant. Um, many scenes were shot on location in Los Angeles. J.F. Sebastian's building is the Bradbury building. Yeah, yeah. Tyrell's house is the Ennis Brown house, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's in Los Feliz. The Second Street Tunnel, uh, Union Station as the police station. The film uses multi-pass exposures. So they shoot a scene, change the light, rewind the film, shoot it again with different lighting, which is very cool. Once One time they did it 16 times. Whoa, mama mia. I know. Uh, the shining eyes method. So like some of the replicants have these shiny eyes. Um, so that was actually borrowed. That was invented by Fritz Long. It's called the Schuften process. And basically a piece of half mirrored glass is mounted to bounce light into the actor's eyes, like 45 degrees this way. I don't know. It's cool. Method. Um, but it's so funny because I saw, I was on IMDb and there's like, there's a frequently asked questions section in IMDb. And one of the questions was, if the replicant's eyes are glowing, why do they need that? test to figure out who's a replicant <laughs> it's a good question the test. it's a good question but then the answer and i don't know where this person got the answer was that it is it's implied that other people can't see that light it's Only just the a, viewers us viewers can see it hmm. <laughs> um in the theatrical cut deckard and rachel ride off into the sunset as i mentioned uh, this is the only time we leave the grungy city and it's these beautiful shots of nature. And these are the aerial shots that were literally surplus from the shining, yep. which is crazy because I, okay, little bit of initial thoughts. This is my first time seeing the theatrical version and that happened. And I was like, this is the shining. Like I swear to God, before I even learned of this, I you was knew. like, this is the shining. So we've covered it on this show. I know. Um, came out to mixed reviews. I'm almost done, I promise. It was nominated for Best Art Direction, Best Visual Effects at the Oscars. Bunch more BAFTAs. Basically, at the BAFTAs, it was nominated for everything except like 
director, picture, and writer. The sequel was released in 2019. It's called... 2017. Why did I write 19? The sequel was released in 2017. It's called Blade Runner 2049. It stars Ryan Gosling. I haven't seen it. What? Yeah, I haven't seen it. What? Um... Yeah, that's what those are my those are my specs. Wow. You covered it, I think. <laughs> oh my god. We haven't even talked about the different versions. And I think all the 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 lot the back lot stuff was Warner Brothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They kind of like commandeered the entire to make the street scenes. Yeah. Iconic. Uh initial thoughts. Blade Runner. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess I should let you know that the first band. The first and only band I was ever in was called JF Sebastian. <laughs> Are you serious? And we never played a live show, but we were going to play the clip of Roy Batty saying, now tell me where I can find this JF <laughs> Sebastian. And then we were going to come on. And like the lights would come on and we'd be there with That's our guitars. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, who, who doesn't love Blade Runner? Apparently a lot of people on Letterboxd were all wrong. Um <laughs> I first saw this movie in probably 2006. In fact, yeah. That's right before the final cut. Yeah, I had just graduated high school and I was working at a Hollywood video. For those who are too young to remember, Hollywood video was basically Blockbuster. It was like the Blockbuster competitor. And uh, I got a pretty hefty employee discount. And so I would just like buy brand new DVDs they had and take them home and watch them. And I remember... Blade Runner was one I knew of for a long time. I'd always see it at the library because our library had VHS tapes. I'm like, what's this Harrison Ford movie that looks all dark and scary? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not interested. <laughs> so 2006, I, I used my employee discount to buy the DVD, which was the 1992 director's cut. Take it home. Pop it in. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, someone who grew up on the Indiana Jones movies and whatever, just loving Harrison Ford. I was kind of confused and also kind of bored. Yeah. And I think I stopped it like halfway through. I was like, um, I'll finish this later. I think a couple of days later, I go back, I pick it up at that spot. And then the second half blew my mind. And I was like, whoa, it's crazy shit happens in the second half. And I, I, so I was like, okay, it's interesting, whatever. 2007, the final cut comes out. And there's a theater where I grew up in the Bay Area called the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, California. And it's this big old movie house. And they were showing the final cut, and it was brand new. It just done it like, oh, Ridley Scott just did this new cut of Blade Runner. So I went with some friends, and sitting there in that theater that night, that's when I fell in love with Blade Runner. I'd seen it once or twice before, and I thought, oh, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting movie. Sitting there in a theater with this new cut, I was I saw the light, and it. If you asked me between the years two thousand seven and two thousand eleven what my favorite movie was i said blade runner so wow i mean yeah this i mean i you know i fit the cliche jackie what can i say <laughs> i was a i was a young uh white boy who loved blade runner <laughs> um yeah i mean come on it's it's the, i think the thing about this movie i'll keep this short the movie kind of sets a lot of stuff up that it then abandons like plot wise. And I think the movie's very clumsily plotted, but it so makes up for it in the sound and fury of this mm-hmm. movie. And I think we talk about seeing and heard, seeing, you know, sight and sound. Like, Jesus Christ, this is sight and sound. If, you, if there's ever been one, this is sight and sound. Yeah. It's some of the most beautiful images 
ever in a film with beautiful shadows and colors and light and beams of light and crazy mm. sets. And like, it, it looks stunning. Yeah. And I think what I love so much about this movie, I've always referred to it as like an accidental masterpiece. Like, yes, he had given us Alien and he'd done The Duelists before that. But this is, this is like his third, I believe his third feature, Ridley Scott. And obviously he demonstrated he was a master of his craft. But there's something about Blade Runner that feels slightly accidental. Um, I think it's an art film in disguise, and I'm not so sure that he intended to make an art film. Maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe I'm like selling Ridley Scott short, but like, it feels like an accidental masterpiece, and it feels like it feels like kind of a big summer sci-fi movie trapped in an art house body. Mm-hmm. And I think that's You're what right. I, that's what I love so much about it. And this, you know, all these years later, I've seen this movie so many fucking times now, and I love it more every time I see it. Like, it still holds up. It's still incredible. I think it's just fucking awesome. Like what what more is there to say about Blade Runner than it's fucking awesome? Like I those two words do more than what I could say. Like it's just awesome. It looks incredible, it sounds incredible. You see great, you know, Rutgerd Hauer and Harrison Ford are like doing their thing and Sean Young and like it's, it's this noir, but it's a sci-fi grungy movie and it looks incredible and it's dark, it's bleak, it's grim, and there's beams of light going everywhere and that's it. <laughs> That's it. What else, what else do you need? So yes, no, that's great. That's uh, you know a great film, and I think still absolutely holds up. Yeah. How about you? I agree. Um, I've only seen this twice. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> the first time was the final cut, and this is my first time seeing the theatrical cut. You did. And you texted me the other day, and you're I'm like, "Say exactly what I said on the text. <laughs> this narration is whack." That's it. The narration was so weird. It started, and I was like whoa 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 i was like i don't remember this i looked it up sure enough i didn't know that the final cut got rid of the director's cut got rid of it too from 92 we'll talk about it (laughs) (laughs) um yeah the narration is so unnecessary it's like once you see that final cut and then you have to go back and watch the theatrical one what a choice what a choice yeah. And I kind of love the fact that Harrison Ford was so pissed off about doing that narration. Like he was mad. It almost like ended his relationship with Ridley Scott. Um and him just going to the I can just imagine him going to the recording studio like all pissed off having to do this. Yeah, um, the rumor is that he flubbed it on purpose. That's the rumor. But I mean, I don't think he does a bad job at it. Um I just think it's stupid. Yeah. No, but I yeah, this movie's incredible. Um there's something so fresh about it, even though it is a neo-noir, even though it is like there's a million futuristic robot movies, but something about the weirdness of this movie yes. makes it so special and really one of a kind, like truly. I was telling you guys, I think on the podcast, I watched like The Matrix last week. For the <laughs> not, first time. Remember? Yeah, I <laughs> yes. was saying it. And I was like, while I was watching it, I'm not kidding. I was like, you know what? I don't need to see any other sci-fi, this vain movie. Like, Blade Runner's fine. I'm good with that. It's funny because I don't think they're that similar. They're but... not similar, <laughs> but I don't know. It was the first thing that popped into my head. Right. 
Anyway, I'm not a big sci-fi person. I, I set myself up for these situations because I'm not a sci-fi person. I'm not a person who is interested in Oppenheimer. And yet I went, you know, that's my thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And also just talking about its like singularity, it's, it is the fact that it doesn't have a lot of action. And it is the fact that the replicants are human and literally everything but name. Like there's no piece of metal popping out of any of them. When you shoot them, they're just normal. They look like normal humans, right? And Westworld did this too recently. Much, I mean, I haven't seen the original movie Westworld, but like it did bring to mind on this rewatch because I don't think I remembered that the replicants, like when you shoot them, they bleed. I didn't remember that. And then it made me think of Westworld, the, the HBO series that also did a kind of similar thing. But of course, that's like the theme of the movie. And that's like why... I don't know. Yeah, it's a mood piece as much as it's a science fiction movie. Yeah. Uh, the music, the lights, like everything is so intentional and it's eerie and lonely and dark and rainy and crowded. Like I just, I don't know. There's something I love so much. And we'll talk about like the look and the design. Of course we will. Um, I also love that there isn't a big galactic crisis going on. Like it's just these four guys and like, it doesn't, I'll talk about this more, but I know it's described as a dystopian future, but it's not really dystopian. It's just crowded. Like, it's just kind of dark. But, mm. the, like, the world hasn't ended. There's no, like, nuclear explosion that people talk about that ended the world. You know no, what I but mean? it's pretty fucking bleak, though. I, you can tell everyone's unhappy and miserable in this. Yes, but there isn't this big crisis that they're solving or trying to save the world or anything. It's very much he's just trying to find these four right. replicants, right. which I really like about it. Um, and I, I agree, like, the love story and the characters are pretty thin, but it doesn't really matter. And you know what? Well, it fits with the genre. Yeah, and it didn't matter to me at all the first time I watched it. This time... I think it bothered me a little more because of the fact that there is narration and narration implies that you're creating a fully fledged character no, and he's just not there. It's just so detective he has all these, narration. Like, it, but it's, but the narration has some moments of like, I don't know. The narration is just bad. Well, what can I say? <laughs> um, you know who prefers yeah. the narration? Who? Guillermo del Toro. Really? Because it's the version he grew up with. So that's the one he that likes. Makes sense. I could see that. If I grew up with it, I could totally see it. I also don't think those aerial shots at the end or just leaving the city um, and those like pastoral shots, like that doesn't work at all. Like the credits roll over mountains. And I was like, what? Well, that cut doesn't, doesn't, it's not real. No, I know, but it was, and it is for a lot of people. No, for 10 years, that was Blade Runner until 1992. That was the ending of Blade Runner. For sure. Yeah. It does matter. Um, those are my initial thoughts. I think the thought was to give you some sort of sense of openness after you've been in this smog-choked city for two hours. Like, they wanted to I give understand. you the rolling hills. But yeah. I totally get that, but it doesn't work. No, I agree. Like, it's totally. weird. It's a I terrible so ending. Yeah, he's, like, looking over to her in the car. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um... Okay, the versions. Let's do it. Let's break them down. So, one, you have the film's work print. This is a rough cut that was shown to test audiences in 1982. I've seen it. 
How? Because mm-hmm. there the the old Blu-ray had like five cuts on it. It had like every cut, and wow. I was such a big fan. I watched all of them. So it didn't do so well. It led to modifications, which led to the theatrical version. But before the U.S. theatrical version, there was the San Diego sneak preview. So this is very similar to the U.S. theatrical release, except. There are three additional scenes that have never been seen before or since that San Diego preview. One of which is the guy at the beginning, the first Void the Tech guy scene. in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of looks like Joseph Cotton, right? I don't remember what he looks like. Totally. He does. <laughs> um, okay. So the, the work print, rough cut, people were responding badly saying they didn't understand. This led to the theatrical version. So... Ridley Scott did not have final cut privileges for the movie. And to respond to audiences saying they didn't understand it, voiceover was added to the film. Harrison Ford, although he resisted with all his might, had to record 13 total bits of narration. The theatrical version also features the happy ending, the riding off into the sunset. (laughs) uh, And a dream sequence featuring a unicorn running. That's in that one, right? No, that I'm... because that's Why do I have that there? I'm, that's a dish. No, that's final cut. No, it's director's cut. I, that didn't. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's from I his film say, Legend. It's a if, which he made was his next film after Blade Runner. So he shot Legend after and then right, for the, right, right, yeah, right. put it back in. Is it not in his rough cut? No, I don't because he hadn't made Legend yet. Got it. Um, then there's the international cut. So for international audiences, three more violent scenes were added to the film or cut out. <laughs> From the work print. Um, And this version was released on Laserdisc by Criterion for the film's 10th anniversary in 1992. It is also sometimes referred to as the Criterion cut. And then there's the director's cut. So in 1990, uh, preservationist Mark Eric found the cut. He found the work print cut that was originally shown to test audiences in May the Cineplex Odeon Fairfax Theater got permission from Warner Brothers to screen it in May 1990 for a film festival without Scott's permission. They started calling it the director's cut without his permission. Like, he didn't even know. And he didn't like that version. He didn't approve of it. He said it was rough and it lacked a key scene. He wasn't even the one to put it together. That preservationist who found it put it together. But it was super popular. And in 1992, Warner Brothers decided to have an official re-release with an an actually approved Ridley Scott director's cut. The king of the director's cuts. Right. <laughs> He's done so um, many. But he still wasn't even fully in control of that director's cut. Really? Apparently not. The final cut, which came out in 2007, is the first cut in which he had complete creative control. Oh. It was released on DVD and Blu-ray. I had this big briefcase version. It looked like the Voight Kampf test and you would open it. And inside, there was a little model of the police spinner, and there was a little metal unicorn origami. That's so cool. <laughs> like, Where is it? I, I don't have it anymore. It's just those kinds of like big special editions take up so much space. I got rid of it at some point, but it was cool. That's I think it even really had like cool. a film cell from the movie, if I remember correctly. That's really cool. The international scenes were put in. So this features the full-length unicorn dream scene. So this is a scene in which when Decker falls asleep... He dreams of this unicorn prancing around. And Greg, you mentioned that's from... It's from Legend, the film he made after Blade Runner. Right. You seen Legend? No. It's good. 
You know what? That one actually has a lot in common with Blade Runner. It is a weirdo <laughs> art film that's fucking weird. Where t- that that was, that one's like the fantasy genre. It has Tom Cruise in it, Tim Curry, Mia Sarah. It has this weird kind of art house edge to it cool yeah and apparently for the 2007 final cut um zora's death that one uh they put her face on there yeah was reshot because you could always tell it was the stunt woman yeah and so he went in and re-scanned her face but you can tell in some of the shots where it's slow motion and she's falling through the glass you can tell it's like the the older version of her face yeah one of the cooler things i like about the final cut sorry no i'm done uh there's a scene when decker goes in to talk to the snake guy Mm-hmm. it's the shot where the camera stays outside and mm-hmm, Deckard mm-hmm. goes in his voice never matched up to what he was saying before i know yeah so I they noticed brought that they yesterday. brought his son in they brought in his son had his son mouth the words and digitally put the son's mouth on harrison ford but it's seamless you can't tell that is so cool i noticed it yesterday i'm like okay i'm just gonna ignore that yeah, i the, guess yeah he fixed it and then a couple other things he fixed in the final cut were like adding maybe sky in some shots where there was like nothing or just like it's not in a George Lucas annoying way. He would just add like little touches. Sure, it's still revisionism. But also, like you said, like this is the first cut he had full control mm-hmm. of. So like I fully support him just like being able to finally give us the movie that he always wanted to give us. But um, yeah, it's like little digital enhancements that like aren't obvious and annoying. So which one do you like more? The final cut. Yeah. The, the I saw the director's cut first. Are you sure the director's cut does not have the unicorn dream? I didn't. The director's cut? The 92 director's cut. I believe that had it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. That's exactly what I remember. Because I remember the first version I saw of the movie had it, which was the 92 director's cut. But the full length one is in the final cut. Well, wait. The, no, because in the final cut, it's just one shot of a unicorn. It's literally just like one shot. Now I'm confused. <laughs> there's a I, lot to I keep made, track of between these three. I made a list. Three. I was all organized. Because there's so many cuts. No, you it's did great. So confusing. You're so organized. I am organized. No, you did a great job. No, but um, um, yeah. So the the final cut is my. Pr- In fact, I only watched the final cut. At this point, there's no really no real reason to go back and watch the '92 director's right. cut. I feel like there is reason to go back and watch theatrical, just because it is so drastically different. Like yeah. it, it has historic value, but. For sure. I prefer the final cut, yeah. No, I was really, I was like dumbfounded when he started narrating. Yeah. Um, The narration is really, it's, what's frustrating about the narration is it's so obvious that they are just trying to make sure no one is confused about anything. Yeah. Like it literally, it's just aimed at explaining to us that he's very jaded from killing and violence and that he's in a moral crisis and then, like I said, it's that, and then just anything that's like slightly confusing. Um, Do you think the film is con- like the first time you saw it and you saw the final cut? Were you confused? A little bit, but I don't oh, really? think to the detriment of the movie. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, like, there's one I really couldn't believe it. He he finds the photos, Leon's photos. He goes, um, "This is what he says." Family photos? Replicants didn't have families either. <laughs> That's a real piece of narration. That's right, yeah. Um, <laughs> another one. Whatever was in that shower was not human. Replicants don't have scales. Oh, my That's God. That's two contrasting things. Like, that's not even written good. It reeks of studio interference. It's bad. Yeah. This one was interesting. Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Neither were Blade Runners. What the <laughs> hell was happening to me? 
<laughs> and then, of course, there's that one crazy one about the police chief. He, Do you remember where he says, like, he calls them skin jobs, just like in history books, like he's the type of cop to call, like, black people, you know what? Oh, does he actually say he it? He says it. Oh, my God. I don't it's remember It's wild. That. I was like, whoa. I was like, that was not in the other one. Whoa. Um, It's crazy. And then what else does he say? I'm going to talk about a few that I actually think are okay. But the one that drove me crazy is like the last one where he goes, Gaff had been there and let her live. <laughs> spelling <laughs> it out. Obviously. Literally. That, you're at the point then where you are just <laughs> spelling it out for the audience. And then when they're on their little road trip, happily ever after, he also says something uh, along the lines of, uh, oh, but the four year thing, she didn't have it in her and like she was fine. Like, what? <laughs> What a, what a dumb Why? little quick fix at the end. Like, oh, um, just kidding. It's okay. Here's one, another one I didn't like. The report would be a routine retirement of a replica, which didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back. There it was again, feeling in myself for her, for Rachel. <laughs> like, it was not bad, but it's just so like... I remember when I first saw the theatrical cut, right after Roy Batty gives his final soliloquy at the end this whole tears and rain speech and he dies and immediately deckard's uh narration, narration. comes in and he's like i couldn't understand what he was saying and i'm like you just no, you ruined this is? moment you know what it is he says i don't know why he saved my life oh there you go there you go that i don't like but what he says later i actually do this is the only one i actually do like maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before not just his life anybody's life yeah, but it also reeks of like Judy Bloom or something. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You are so right. But the family photos one is crazy to me. Yeah. It's crazy to me. But you know, the narration really does drive home this noir thing. Yeah. And it's set in Los Angeles. That's the excuse that they use. They're like, yeah. well, we'll spell it out for people, but it'll be in spirit of the noir genre. Yeah. Yeah. I also love like other 40s things is like, well, I guess Rachel's the big one. Like her hair before oh, she yeah. lets it down. So 40s, a there's cigarette, some, her There's outfit. some 40s cars in here too. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, it's mixed so in. cool. Like that's so cool about it. Yeah. Um, But I also love when she lets her hair down. And I love that shot. I love how it's like a close profile and you don't actually see her. And then the hair just falls and it's great. Yeah, it's stunning. I love it. I think um, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I know Sean Young has is kind of fallen out of favor Why? with like the film industry because it seems she's kind of um uh, like i think she has a history of like stalking uh co-stars and i think <laughs> that i think that like harrison ford like had a problem with her or something and he like shut it down or something but she's like been kind of known and for like stalking co-stars like male co-stars and then you know, she's kind of been ostracized at this point from the industry, which is why you don't really see her in anything past like the early to mid nineties. Um, is she in the sequel? Uh, they use, they use a scan of her. Uh, so she looks like she does in this movie. So I don't think she really, yeah. What is I can't believe you about? haven't seen the sequel. Jackie. What's it about? Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. Um, a replicant, right? Yes. Well, the movie, um, Ryan Gosling is a Blade Runner, and he he has this digital, he has this virtual girlfriend. It's actually Anna Darmus before she was like a big deal, and uh, he's just uh, I don't remember the main plot. Uh, Jared Leto is unfortunately in the movie in a role that was supposed to be David Bowie's, but he passed away, so unfortunately Jared Leto got it. But uh, it's about them looking for Deckard, and so Harrison Ford reprises his role, and 
it's great shot by roger deakins it's denny villeneuve uh great movie yeah it's i was let's talk about it for a second yeah because i guess we should but like and you haven't seen it but i saw it when it came out a lot of us were very nervous because blade runner is not the kind of movie you should make a sequel to because it's such a beloved cult movie and i think it's such a special stew right of like it shouldn't work but it does like i said earlier like it's kind of an accidental masterpiece mm-hmm. so the thought of doing a sequel seemed ludicrous but denis villeneuve did a great job in terms of like he does expand the world it's a more coherent movie it's probably a more satisfying movie in a, like a more traditional sense mm-hmm. everyone kind of agrees he did a good job with it and i know there's lots of people out there who prefer it to the first movie which is crazy to me but um yeah there's a lot of people that don't like this film the original blade runner because they think it's too they can't quite get a feel for it or something yeah Hmm. so yeah no you should see 2049 he's he's a replicant who deckard yeah he's been a replicant the whole time see that's still the argument you know that people can't make up their mind on that we'll talk about like if you talk to harrison ford you talk to ridley scott like everyone has a different opinion on whether deckard's a replicant or not well i thought that's what the plot was of the sequel that's why i ask honestly it's (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen the sequel. Um, I don't remember. I think it's still ambiguous in that movie because I think Villeneuve I didn't want to spell it out if Ridley Scott hadn't. So I'm from memory. I guess spoiler. That's not a spoiler. I don't. I think it's ambiguous. Okay. It's worth it. You're gonna like it. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Do you uh, think he's a replicant? Yeah. Let's talk about that now. Then. Yeah. Um, I don't. Why? But. The unicorn thing, yeah, is pretty important. But if you, like, if we ju- we just mentioned, like, the unicorn didn't come in until ninety two. The unicorn dream, yeah. So if that's the only thing, well, the cut using, you wa- not the cut you watched because theatrical. I'm not talking about the nothing cut points to him. Nothing points. Yeah, to yeah. Him, the theatrical, except her saying like, "Have you ever taken one of those tests?" Right. Um, but it's. If we don't have that unicorn dream, then I don't think there's really much to go off of. Agreed. Except I really love the scene when he's like his piano is covered in family photos and it's after Rachel has brought her fake photo. So I think that's the only other thing that we have to as a reference. Yeah. Like he's what? doubting himself that's why he's looking at all his family photos they're all spread out on his piano yeah are those, those maybe are his right yeah yeah um that's my only other thing but i don't think he is i think the ambiguity is part of the theme that's the whole the whole movie is about like what is human yeah um and so i don't think that looking for this answer will satisfy you i think looking for this answer is for people who don't want to ambiguity. really feel the movie and understand what the movie's about. <laughs> but you know people how people are. solve puzzles. Yes. This question is for people who want to solve puzzles. It's like our Mulholland Drive episode. Yeah. We talked about this. So people needing to solve Mulholland Drive. I'm like. Yeah. Yeah. Let it wash over you. Look for the hidden Mickey. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I think because of the unicorn, I think it's fairly cut and dry. I think. He is. It, he's a replicant. But if that wasn't in the original, then how can it be? But that wasn't Scott's original vision, Jackie. True, but you're saying that re- that unicorn content wasn't even created when the movie was created. I know. Well, in 1982, I'm sure. So you're saying he might have changed his mind. Yeah, I think Ridley Scott. So changed Ridley his Scott mind. has said that he believes he's a replicant. Yeah. 
um harrison ford says no yeah or it's that he never wanted him to be yeah um I, I mean, Ridley Scott has said it, so I guess in his mind he is, but... I would have liked a subtler hint, I think, because the unicorn makes it pretty cut and dry. It really does. Like, he dreamt of yeah. a unicorn, and Gaff was like, here, here's a unicorn, and it's like, you know, pretty... I think it's it makes it too obvious. Yeah. Uh, but Gaff also says... What does he say? He's like, too bad she couldn't live, but then who does? But then again, who does? Yeah, but then again, who does? Also, you have Edward James almost playing a Japanese man. He's supposed to be Japanese? Yeah. He is? <laughs> yeah. The origami and everything. Oh. Yeah. I didn't capture it. I thought it was just like a mishmash, the mishmash of languages. This kind of thing happened all the time back in the day in movies, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the movie is, what I like about the movie is that it is completely on the side of the replicants. Yes. I think yes. I, I think I like that about the movie. I think this, because a yeah. lot of AI movies are like, okay, like it's dangerous, but also they have feelings. What about Spielberg's AI? That's like the ultimate on the side of the AI. I haven't seen that. Oh, Jackie, it's so good. Really? Oh, it's good. Oh. It is surprising for a Spielberg movie. It's surprisingly moody and dark, and just like, oh, it's good. It's good. Okay. Because he was developing it with Kubrick. And Kubrick died, and Spielberg's like, "Well, I'll continue the torch." So, like, he made it, but it feels, it feels beyond like a Spielberg movie. It's like you can still feel that Kubrick in it. Great movie, For sure. but yeah, I agree. I think one of the strong points of Blade Runner is the whole philosophical, like when you find out, yes, Roy Batty has come to Earth, back to Earth. He's to, been, yeah, violent. Right, he's been violent. He came back to Earth to seemingly see if he can expand his his life. But you really realize he came to Earth to just question his maker of like, why? Why did you invent us and mm-hmm. give us this lifespan? And why did you make us, why did you give us memories? And yeah, it's, it's that that scene where they meet, where he meets um, Tyrell is like mm-hmm. so, and then ultimately kisses him and crushes his face. But he also, there's an interesting little thing too when uh Roy Batty goes up to Tyrell and says like I want more life he used to say like I want more uh, life yeah. fuck her so yeah. it sounded like a cross between fucker and father and yeah it was intentional and now in the new in the final cut he clearly says father really yeah I I, le- I read about that I also read that they, it was intentional and then if you watched it on like tv it was obviously father like if you had the subtitles on watching it on tv it was father right if you had the dvd it was always it was fucker. fucker yeah um but i'm very moved at the end like i'm yes. very moved by his speech yeah like, i actually feel so much for him yeah um and i think it's beautiful like well i think that's why that's what i like so about it so much about it is it starts as this like routine detective story like find the replicants and hunt them down but then the movie becomes more interested in the replicants than in deckard or anything going on over there right and so it is it becomes their story right it does open with like the title card that it starts with explaining the situation uh-huh. one of the first things the movie starts with is referring to what the replicants are doing as slave labor. Yes. Like it very clearly showing the cards at the start, mm-hmm. uh, which I love about it. But yeah, it's this thing about another thing he says during that, like final confrontation is like quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? Yeah. And he talks about all the things he's seen and your, your imagination goes wild of like, 
I think wow, he, um, this man was very vulnerable for a very long time before he was a villain. Like he was beaten down yeah. and like I don't know. My yeah, he didn't start as a bad wild. guy. Yeah. Yeah, this movie's about colonization. Oh, like, for, it's about slavery. Yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty it's, sure Rutger Hauer improvised. Not improvised, but I'm I think if I remember correctly, he wrote that whole last thing like yeah. sea beams on the Tannhauser Gate and all that whole thing. Yeah. Which come on that's the movie it's amazing that's the movie um, that's the picture right there and like we see him like kiss pris for one last time when yeah. she's dead um he's also just and even like the other androids too like i am fully convinced of their feelings like rachel especially like she's crying when yeah. deckard tells her like that's not you yeah Let's um, let's talk about a Rachel scene, really. Let's talk about Rachel scene. But one last thing I want to talk about about uh, Roy is just how unhinged he is in that last scene. Like, what a weirdo! It's he so strips down to his boxers. Weird. What is this <laughs> nail thing? Oh, he's howling. The way it's shot, the way he's moving. I mean, I, I could tell you what the nail is. It's because he like knows that he's losing his life. Yeah, he's dying. Like one of the things, because the first time you ever see Roy in the movie, his hand is like closing. Yeah. He's like, no more time. So that's his whole thing. Like that's him literally like powering down. Like he's his life is coming to a close. So the nail is like, if anything, Wake jolting up. himself yeah. to like stay alive a little yeah. longer. Yeah. But yeah, no, the whole last part of this movie with them in jf sebastian's apartment terrifying on the, it's a full-on gothic horror movie yeah like, yeah and it's beautiful for that i love what it turns into yeah and yeah suddenly he's in his underwear running around howling <laughs> howling i did i direct this movie I, I there's something about like i wonder how ridley scott told rutger howard like okay and th- now you're going to just be in your underwear and rutger howard's probably like why because you are don't worry yeah. about it don't worry you're gonna run around in your underwear no big deal yeah you're gonna suddenly have a dove in one scene. Oh, like, the dove! Yeah, the dove is hilarious. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Rachel, but I also want to talk about the test, the Voight Kampf test. So I guess they're kind of related. Like, yeah. I would not. I don't know if I would pass that test. I don't understand what they're looking for. Uh, it's to see how flustered and nervous you get because, like, replicants can't process all these like strange what ifs and like the turtles on its back right. and, uh, yes and, and the, that guy leon for sure like is flips. obviously weirder yeah. but even rachel i think that she's delivering she, it pretty smooth pretty smooth is she supposed to break down like that's a good point actually because like the whole thing is it takes him a while to realize but she's answering pretty robotically yeah i don't know that's why i was like how would i answer would I? I'm I'm more like the Leon guy. I'd be like, "What a tortoise! <laughs> What's a tortoise? <laughs> Why am I there? Well, yeah, what am I? No, you're right. Rachel does like very calm and collected, just like I would take him to the doctor. Yeah, she's a cool customer. Um, also the calfskin wallet that uh-huh. took me a minute to understand. I actually had to look it up because apparently like animals. Yeah, well, apparently animals. Because she goes, I would not accept it, and I would call the police. So I was like, calfskin wallets are illegal because there's no animals and so like the only animals that there are they don't slaughter them for calfskin wallets because they can synthesize their food yes like every future like the snake license the artificial <laughs> snake license yeah um rachel rachel <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a very wooden performance but it it works because again the the 
the image is doing the heavy the heavy lifting like her face the way she's dressed the way she's lit the cigarette like no she's not like she doesn't bowl you over in the movie but it, she doesn't need to because the movie's doing so much around her yeah but let's talk about the big scene here um i don't because, know what you're talking about i feel a certain way about it tell me i th- i am of the opinion that deckard rapes rachel that's str- that's a strong opinion you don't think so i don't i don't think so really yeah he kisses her. She gets up. Yeah, he does. And, go, and goes to the door. <laughs> yeah, she does. He slams the door shut. Yeah, he does. She's about to cry. Okay? I don't know if you remember this part where she's about to cry. I'm sweating. <laughs> it would be one thing if, like, she wanted to be it's chased. The moment, it's the moment where she looks like she's about to cry. That is that is the only, that's the only questionable moment. And he's putting words in her me. mouth. Say, kiss me say kiss me he's teaching her how to be a lover oh that sounds like a toxic ass fuck to me (laughs) he's teaching her he's harrison ford surely her memories her implanted memories tell her how to she wants him no but he doesn't he doesn't need to teach her he is though he does she's a robot yeah, but she has memory implants. Of a little girl. But do you think they would give a grown woman virginal implant memory implants? Like, if Tyrell wanted her to be like a normal person, he would include some kind of sexual past. But it was his niece. So maybe he was weirded out yeah. and didn't realize that his niece had sexual feelings. Well, maybe he took some of the niece and some of... <laughs> <laughs> my My understanding was that she has like the memories. She only has like childhood memories of his little girl niece. Yeah. That's just like the feeling I get. Right. Um, but she has to have memories as an adult, too. Because otherwise, like, what did I do six months ago? You know. Well, that's what I mean when I say the plot is not very meticulously thought through. Yeah. I think this is so going to sound so bad, but I think it's really hot. Like, <laughs> I know it sounds so bad, but it's I see it as him like. I don't think she's afraid. <laughs> I think she wants him. You think she wants him? Of course. Who wouldn't? Look at him. There's a lot of people out there who don't find Harrison Ford attractive. I'm I don't not understand. One of those people. I don't understand either. I'm just either. not one of those people. Same. Maybe if I wasn't one of those people, I would understand. But Harrison Ford coming towards me, I'm against a wall. Forcefully. Like, it's not forceful. No, he is being forceful. Whether it's no. consensual or not, he he slams the door and he pushes her against the because wall. Because where's she going to go to? Where's she going to run Yeah, but now? then he pushes her. The push is a little much. Yeah. What? You forgot the push. What? Okay. Here's, what I, here's all I'm saying. I think Deckard is an insanely insufferable character. I think he is so selfish and everything is for his gratification i don't think about him that much and i think the key is that it's played by harrison ford because harrison ford brings a certain likability to an otherwise really yeah kind of drab character but also just like a dick he's a dick was he a dick he's i mean the scene we just mentioned you think because of that scene he's a dick that he rapes a robot he doesn't rape her i think he that is literal assault she is crying she is like on the verge of tears and he's like say kiss me and he slams her against the wall no yeah <laughs> oh my god i think we're gonna have to agree to disagree it's fair it's i think interesting because harrison ford looks like a ghoul in that scene the way he's lit i think he looks fantastic <laughs> but that's just my opinion um 
I don't think I don't see it as rape. I see it as she doesn't know what to do. She wants him, but she doesn't know what to do, and he has to teach her because she's a literal robot. Well, then why is she crying? Because she's overflowing with feelings. But she was so cool during the Voight Comp test. Exactly. So she should be cool, right? Well, she's next to six. But the Voight comp test is very superficial, fake things. Like here, she is confronted with love and attraction. That's not love. It's just lust. Lust. Let's call it lust. I agree because I don't. At the end, when he's like, "Do you love me?" I was like, "You guys don't love each other." I know. Like you guys know each other two days. I know. Um. So that part is silly. And like I said, I think the love story is pretty thin. And don't forget how rude he is to her when she first comes over his apartment. And just totally yeah. chastises her, makes her he cry. Goes, I'm joking. Yeah, and he says I'm joking in a really annoying like I'm joking. I'm kidding. Do you want to? It's like, but he's he's conflicted, and I think he's doubting himself in that moment. Maybe I think he's angry because he's he's thinking about himself. Interesting. That's why he's looking at the photos and stuff because uh. he's like, oh my god, they could do this to anyone. Like, right, how many right, right. Do I know that might actually be replicants. Be replicants. Skin jobs. Um. I love this movie. Sorry to move away from the steamy no, sex scene. I think scene. we're done. Um, I love the movie's use of like LA landmarks. Like I love Let's that the Bradbury building is in it. And of course, if you go to the Bradbury, there's a whole thing about Blade Runner. And uh, also for such a historic building that was built in like the 1800s, how are they able to like flood the hallways? It, yeah. Maybe it was in disrepair for a while and they like renovated it. But that building is stunning in real life. Like, yeah. For the first five years I lived in L.A., anyone that came to visit, I would take them to the Bradbury building. That's so cute. And there used to be, I don't know if it's still there, but there's a Brad, there's a Brad, there's a subway in the first floor. So that whole building just smells like shitty subway bread. <laughs> you know, subway bread's not the even smell. bread, right? Yeah. In Ireland, it's considered a dessert. Yeah. Because there's so much sugar in it for <laughs> preservatives. <laughs> well, that's sweet. Um, What's interesting about this J.F. Sebastian's house is that I love Deckard's apartment. I think it's so cool. Because it's, it's Frank Lloyd Wright. I thought Frank Lloyd Wright was Tyrell, the Tyrell building. No, I think it's Deckard's apartment. You can see that like kind of Egyptian influence that was in a lot of Frank right. Lloyd Wright. It's so cool. I love it. What's his name? J.F.? J.F. Sebastian. What? His, when we're in his building, it's the first time I feel like real dystopian like this place is abandoned and desolate and weird i guess it's not weird (laughs) but like why is it abandoned why is he the only one living there i know it's such prime real estate he said something about there's no housing crisis or something yeah i guess just no one wants to live there because he pulls up he parks right the fuck in front and you're like how did he get such a great spot oh because no one else lives there there. it's so odd um that's one of the odd things about the movie. It's like one of those weird things. Like, why does he live alone there? Why is there no one else in the building? The fucking toys. There's that guy. One of the toys that's like a soldier has a long nose. And he's like constantly like (laughs) like growling. It's so weird. Yeah, I love it. I love it too. And like the pink room that Pris is hiding in. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's creepy, too. I love it. It turns gothic horror. I love it, too. And, of course, he has, like, that... What does he have? He has, like, a genetic disorder himself. Yeah, where his cells age faster or something. Yeah. 
It's so weird. So you kind of have that Peter Pan syndrome with him, that Michael Jackson uh, link. Although this is pre-Michael Jackson getting crazy or whatever, but this guy who's like clinging on to his childhood and creating toys to, and yet to be friends with. And, aging. Yeah. Accelerating. Because he's only supposed to be 25 in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that's why he like connects with them because yeah, they, they have expand a, their lifespan. They have an expiration date. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the world a little bit. And we did with the Bradbury building a little. So Ridley Scott described his design goals for Los Angeles in 2019 as Hong Kong on a bad day. I love it. Did you know that? A bad day at Black Rock. You just learned something new. <laughs> um, <laughs> models and matte paintings inspired by Metropolis. Yes. And Edward Hopper's Nighthawk. So he was really inspired by that image of just like what is yeah. it like three or four lonely people yeah. on that counter um and also this french science fiction comic called metal Urlant. Mm. i don't know what that is but concept art is by sid mead production designers pr- the production designers lawrence g paul and the art director is david snyder i felt it important to mention them because this movie is so yeah. much just world design i'm pretty sure some Um, of them went on to work on the first uh batman film so i think tim burton was like i want the look of blade runner yeah or did he get the people from brazil Mm. it gives brazil (laughs) it does get brazil in the same way of like the mixing of the 1940s with the futuristic kind of thing yeah honestly very blade runner in brazil like blade runner is the serious Mm -hmm. kind of version and Blade Runner is the, or sorry, Brazil is the wacky, wacky one. Version, you know, because it's like, but they're both really like sad. sci-fi noirs. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I love that it's, I mean, I talked about how it's not necessarily like apocalyptic, but um, it's just like messy future. Like I like messy yeah. future. Yeah. Like we have tech, but also it's dark all the time and the streets are really crowded. Uh, in a way, like it reminds me of Star Wars in that way where it's very tactile. Like it's just yes, like crowded and earth tones, even though it's the technology is so advanced. Like I love that about it. Yeah. Um, why is it always dark? I I think it's because the, the city is so choked by smog mm. that it's just perpetually dark. Although if we can get that rain, that would be nice. Yeah, in the LA. rain is really nice. <laughs> why well, we did get rain for how long in LA? Today. No, just uh, this past year. Yeah, sure. We had a pretty wet winter and spring, but not enough. Bring it. Bring it, baby. We're talking about the weather. Yeah, because we're <laughs> recording this in the middle of August and it's hot as fuck um, right now. It really is. <laughs> How about that ice lab? I love it. I With love James Hong. That. I know. He's like, five, ten minutes. Yeah. I think that's a <laughs> well, nod. From Seinfeld. Yeah. That's a nod to Chinatown featuring him. Uh, my, not really. And wait, in what way? <laughs> Just that he's in that noir and he's in this noir. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> but he's such a prolific character actor. I know, but like two noirs. Come on. They should have. Something. He should have been a maitre d in this, and that would have really sold it. That would have been if he was the butler at Tyrell. Yeah, at the Tyrell and he kept house. saying five ten minutes till dinner. Yeah, five ten minutes. Um, <laughs> what about that billboard? Oh my God! <sighs> Striking. It is striking. It's striking. This movie is so striking. And the yeah. fact that it was like all practical effects and like yeah. camera work and yeah. it's incredible models. I just look what we have now. You know, we have Avengers uh, Endgame and that looks so tactile and beautiful. I, I'm blown away, Jackie. 
<laughs> what about the noodle stand? We didn't talk about the noodle stand. I mean, what's there to talk about? <laughs> it's just perfection. Yeah. Every piece of the design of this film is is really incredible. Actually, if you go to the Academy Museum, you probably saw it because it's like permanently in the prop room. But they have the phone booth that mm. Deckard calls Rachel yeah. from when he's in the club. Yeah. I love that. So that reminded me so much of uh, the phone, the video phone booth from Space Odyssey. Totally. Yeah. That's like the cleaner version. This yeah. one's all beat up. I love the hair dryer. I love that one yeah. replicant after she's done dancing. She goes in that hair dryer and her hair is dry immediately. Like, yeah. that's my dream. That's, that's Joanna dream. Cassidy. Did you ever see Six Feet Under? No. Oh, okay. She was on that. But why is she dancing in a club? Why not? It's a perfect cover for a skin job. But they're not. See, and this is something I, I just realized. This is something I like about it. She's not with them. Like she just wanted to get back to Earth and like live a normal life. Get no, a job. she's she's one of the four. No, no, no. I know she's one of the four, but she's not with them. Oh, sure. She's not like on the mission with them. She literally just wanted to come and be a dancer in a club. Having not read the book, I'm that's ass- true. I'm, I'm assuming, sure maybe in the book there's something. But- I'm assuming you know they were all slaves. There was a revolt. I'm sure Roy Batty. He's a very charismatic leader. Led he the was way. The leader, yes, and I'm sure. He was like, who wants to come with us? And we're leaving and we're killing people on the way out to get it. We're blasting our way out of here. And right. You know, she was probably like, yeah, I'll go. Yeah. But then she didn't stick around with them. Yeah. Because she just wants a better her life for job. herself. Yeah, exactly. That's what I like. Whereas, like I the like other so ones much. are like on a mission. Right. But she's not. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to be a dancer. Yeah. It was just so cool. I love that. I love the Harrison Ford uh, when he like raises his voice. Oh, my God. Yeah. We're looking. We're looking for holes. Yeah, holes. No like he comment d- yet. He does that voice, and he he's so good at it. He also d- in his entire performance in American Graffiti, he uses that higher pitch voice. Yeah, a, a mutual friend of ours worked with him on a documentary, and had to go to his house, and he buzzed Harrison Ford's gate, and a voice came over, was like, "Yes," <laughs> and then it was like, "Yeah, so and so, I'm here," and he's like, "Just a minute," <laughs> and then Harrison Ford opened the door, so he like used that same oh, voice. I love that voice. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great scene. The whole scene where he chases her down, he chases her through the streets. Like, oh my god! Yeah, the sound design, the, the whole thing, the way it's shot. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. Again, like I hate to say this, but it sounds so cliche. But can't make this now. Can't make it. Would not feel the same way. Why? CG's not the fucking same. It's oh, really not. Well, what about twenty forty nine? I mean, it's a different film. I think that why twenty forty nine works so well is it doesn't try to do the same thing as this movie. It's more of like an expansion. It has its own story. And I think that's why it works. It doesn't, you know. That movie's a little more like, like this movie's cramped and and clustered, like in a great way. Like everything's always close together. There's lots of people. 2049, like there's a lot of big open spaces in that movie. Mm. So, because okay. it's, you know, 20 years after this. 30, sorry, 30 years after this. So Yeah. Um, but it was funny in 2019 when we caught up to Blade Runner. And we're like, well, we've it does LA does not look like yeah, this movie. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious. You know, I was thinking about that the other day because what? Oh, like Back to the Future, right? There's yeah. the one in, uh, it's the second one, Part right? Part two, yeah. Yeah. And it's 2020? 2015. Is it 2015? I thought it was, oh my God. Yeah, because it's 1985, 1955, but and then so funny. 2015. So like every time I get nervous and scared about like AI or whatever, I always remember that, that like movies like this and Back to the Future and like countless others. Once we pass those marks and that hasn't happened yet, (laughs) we're not actually as advanced as we think we are. And that gives me a little bit of comfort. Well, we are just in different ways, I think. 
the I'm drastic actually, changes people thought would be. I'm like, really scared. Cars. Well, I no. don't even think in our lifetime we'll have flying cars. I don't think we will either because that's a whole that opens up a whole another world of like policing. You know what I mean? In terms of yeah. like regulations that it's not just the technology. Like we could have a flying car. I think it's just a matter of like Changing what that would we, entail. Yeah. yeah. Um and if someone crashes up there, Guess what? They're coming down and hitting people <laughs> below. So it's, it opens up a whole other thing. You know, uh, of all the films, what I think we should adopt. You've seen Minority Report? No. <laughs> yeah, your non-sci-fi is showing. There's this great, like, there's this great sort of like rail system in that movie that connects to like everyone's home. So you just get into this like moving car and everything's on a track. Guess what? You oh, take so ugly. You take humans out of the equation. No one's going to have accidents. That's very ugly, though. Yeah, but it's safer. Do you think in our lifetimes it'll be like standard that it's just self-driving cars? I have a theory that if I live to be like 80 or 90, I think self-driving cars are not going to be a thing anymore. I think we're going to be telling our kids or grandkids like, "Yeah, when I was young, we you actually controlled the cars." I don't think yeah, I don't think, think they're going to be flying, but like But it'll be self-driving. Well, cuz we already have self-driving cars. Exactly. Like my dad like tests them. Oh. Um, but like I, yeah, I think it's already a thing. I think give it another 30 years or something, maybe 40 years. And like, it'll just be the standard of like, no, we're not going to let some crazy fuck who just did a bunch of meth, like get in a car and like hit people, kill people. Yeah. It's just, there's so many, there's so many dumbass people out there who don't know how to drive or even just pay attention that. Yeah. I don't, I I think we're, that'll do for traffic. I mean, it should in theory completely remove it. Maybe. Do you know why traffic exists? Too many people? It's it's too many people, but it's also too many people following too closely to each other. So that when one person puts on their brakes, the next person puts on their brakes, it creates this chain reaction. If everyone just moved, even if it was slowly and kept proper distance, no one would like stop, stop. So that's, you know, self-driving cars would take care of that. I guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but Back to the Future, you brought Back to the Future. That one's kind of like a comic book version of the future. Yeah. Where it's like... Yeah, but- but yeah, two ties. there's cool. The two ties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm trying to think. Do you, is there a movie? I know you're not, again, not a big sci-fi fan, but is there a sci-fi movie where you think it's like most accurate about like our future? I think I would say like Children of Men or something. Although that's also oh, a very yeah, bleak. Yeah. That's Children fucking of Men bleak. for sure. Yeah. Did you see After Yang? You know what? I have not yet seen it. It's been Came on out my, last year. That's yeah. pretty close. I forget how soon in the future it is. It's pretty realistic. And I could totally see like the cars are self-driving. Um, everyone does have like a droid in their house. Um, that one is pretty realistic. It's like Bicentennial Man. I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> with Robin Williams. I know. I don't know. There's like... <laughs> I've created a list now of like boy movies that boy I have movies. to watch. Oh boy. I'll add all these to the boy <laughs> movie list. <laughs> There's some great science fiction out there. The thing about sci-fi is when it's great, it's so great. But, you know, there's a lot of mediocre stuff too. Wait, do you like Black Mirror? No. You don't like it? I've never watched it. Oh, it both <laughs> sound like it's my thing. It, it's your thing. It's your thing. I hate technology i don't want to have nightmares about technology the cool thing about black mirror is it's all like just in the future it's like not right it's like believe a believable distance in like the 2040 future. yeah anyway i feel like we're going on a tangent but it's a bit of a tangent yeah the world of blade runner 
It's a doozy. I love it. It's a doozy. It's gorgeous. I was once uh, Rick Deckard for a Halloween party. Oh, what'd you wear? I like wore a like, coat. Yeah, a coat. Try to get like the shirt. Yeah. I couldn't find the gun. Did right. you cut your hair? I, I used to <laughs> I used to buzz my head back then. So oh, it was wow. like because his hair in this is pretty short. Pretty short. It's yeah. the shortest. I think I, I buzzed it and I let it grow out a little bit. Well, should we do sight and sound? I think so. I guess it's that time, huh? What is your favorite sight from Blade Runner? My favorite sight is when he's in his room. I kind of briefly touched on it in his bedroom. And the light comes in the window. Uh, And he's sitting at the piano. And he has all those photos spread out. That's my favorite sight. Is that right before he enhances the photo on the computer? Yes, because then he gets more liquor and goes and sits down and enhances. G eight to G twelve. I love that noise. Oh my god, I love that. Noise. I always love that the computer responds to him saying, Stop. "Wait a minute." Yeah, no, wait a minute. He, he literally say, he says, "Wait a minute," and it stops. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> and also, it turns a corner in the image. I think it's part of it. Yeah, but it literally like finds something you couldn't find in the image. It literally goes into like a bathroom and then turns. Yeah, a and sees the woman with yeah. the scales. Joanna Cassidy. Whatever. Yeah. Um, but they're not scales. They're just glitter that's on her, right? Yeah. They're like fake scales. Yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite sight. What's yours? It's hard to pick a f- one favorite image from the movie that's just lavish like this. But I'm going to go with the scene because it fucking checks out for me, for Greg. I love the shot when Deckard is in J.F. Sebastian's apartment. And it's that, that wide shot of him with all the toys and mannequins. Mm. And he's slowly approaching and you see Pris sitting there and she's like the veil on. Yeah. And it's this very quiet shot. And you hear like some of the toys going off and it's Deckard's great. just slowly approaching. But it's just like this vista of uh, creepy toys. It's great. Yeah, that's, again, it feels wrong to just pick one favorite from this movie, but there you go. Yeah. What's your favorite sound? My favorite sound is the high-pitched voice. What it's what line? Be. Here it is. Excuse me, Miss Salome. Can I talk to you for a minute? I'm from the American Federation of Variety Artists. Yeah? I'm not here to make you join. No, ma'am. That's not my department. Actually, uh, I'm from the uh, Confidential Committee on Moral Abuses. What a cutie. Oh, he's the cutest. <laughs> he's so cute. He is really, really the cutest. Yeah. I don't know. What's your favorite sound? I, I love the scene too, just quickly on Harrison Ford. I love that scene. It's right. It's the scene. <laughs> it's earlier in the night before Deckard um, assaults Rachel. Okay. But he comes home and his mouth is bleeding. He takes a shot. <gasps> oh. And then some I of the know. blood goes back yeah. into the glass. And then he bends over the sink and he's like washing blood his face. Out. It's fucking great. He just looks, so, he'd do anything. He looks so cool. Exactly. But Which he's also like an everyman. It's very hard to believe that you don't like the no, kiss. He, he's a ghoul in that scene. He's not a ghoul. <laughs> do you know what a ghoul is? I just, I found I this out. Like a like a small green frog-like monster no i'll tell you the actual definition of a ghoul and i just learned this like in the last year a ghoul is technically a person a living person who like digs up bodies in a cemetery why i don't know that's so a grave digger yeah but maybe there's some necrophilia involved i don't know (laughs) i don't know uh my favorite sound again hard i didn't go with evangelist the score is incredible for this movie i don't know how many times 
I've been with the bros, with the boys, and like we had this score on in the background. It's almost become a cliche at this point to like be hanging with friends and put on the Blade Runner soundtrack. Wait, really? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this score is like legendary. Okay. You don't like the score? I like it. I guess we didn't really talk about the score. I like it. So, did you know that? Do you know who Demi Russo is? Yeah. I, I didn't know that he was the voice um, singing in Tales of the Future. I did not know until my later research. And I love him. But he, I realized later it's because he's so much older. Like, I listen to, like, 60s Demis Rousseau. Uh-huh. Uh, that's just what, like, my grandparents loved. Um, so I didn't recognize him. Mm. And then I looked him up and I was like, it's him. Yeah. But that song is so interesting because when it starts, I was like, oh, Arabic. And then I was like, and it's not Arabic. So like it's the first two lines are actual Arabic. And then the rest of the song, um, Vangelis purposefully mishmashed into gibberish because he didn't want it to be recognizable at all. Right, right. Um, which is just, yeah. I feel like everyone, including him, was just putting in their all to make this such a weird movie yeah that whole scene with the snake bar and like that guy taffy lewis yeah. and like what all the weird that? outfits and and i love that about it yeah the score i i really like the score would yeah. i say i love it and i sit around with my friends and listen to it no i'm sorry greg i don't do that <laughs> i've done it too many times to count <laughs> um my favorite sound oh we're talking about your favorite i'm sorry i no, don't no. know where we were talking no it's fine <laughs> my favorite sound i mean again hard to pick but not going with Vangelis because I don't even know what part of the score I would pick. It's all so great. It's just the the crosswalk sounds when he, especially when he's chasing uh, the uh, Joanna Cassidy, uh-huh. and it's like walk now, walk now, and then it goes don't yes. walk, don't walk, and it just adds such a great like feel to the scene. Here it is. It always sticks with me. I always like that. That sound pops in my head just yeah. at random yeah. times. Interesting. Don't walk. Don't walk. It's Don't so walk. weird. You can't even. It's not really even fully like audible. Like what he said. What the thing is saying. Oh. Like I turned on subtitles for that moment. I love the noise of the computer with the photo. Oh, enhance. Yeah, yeah. I love that too. Uh, Pauline, Pauline Kale. This is our Pauline Kale segment. <clears throat> this is her review from 1982. She says, and again, remember, she's reviewing the theatrical she's, cut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The congested megalopolis sets are extraordinary, and they're lovingly, perhaps obsessively, detailed. This is the future as a black market made up of scrambled, sordid aspects of the past. Chinatown, the Casbah, and Times Square. With an enormous, mesmerizing ad for Coca-Cola and Art Deco neon signs everywhere in a blur of languages. Blade Runner, which cost $30 million, has its own look. And a visionary sci-fi movie that has its own look can't be ignored. It has its place in film history. But we're always aware of the sets as sets, partly because although the impasto of decay is fascinating, what we see doesn't mean anything to us. 
Ridley Scott isn't great on mise-en-scene. We're never sure exactly what part of the city we're in or where it is in relation to the scene before and the scene after. Scott seems to be trapped in his own alleyways without a map. (laughs) And we're not caught up in the pulpy suspense plot. I agree with her. Mm. Here we are, only 40 years from now, in a horrible electronic slum, and Blade Runner never asks, how did this happen? The picture treats this grimy retrograde future as a given, a foregone conclusion, which we're not meant to question. The presumption is that man is now fully realized as a spoiler of the earth. The sci-fi movies of the past were often utopian or cautionary. This film seems indifferent, blasé, and maybe, like some of the people in the audience, a little pleased by this view of a medieval future, satisfied in a slightly vengeful way. She finishes by saying uh, a few negative things. This movie loses track of the few expectations it sets up, and the formlessness adds to a viewer's demoralization. The film itself seems part of the atmosphere of decay. Blade Runner has nothing to give the audience, not even a second of sorrow for Sebastian. It hasn't been thought out in human terms. If anybody comes around with a test to detect humanoids, maybe Ridley Scott and his associates should hide. (laughs) With all the smoke in this movie, you feel as if everyone connected with it needs to have his flu cleaned. (laughs) His flu? Yeah, like chimney flu. Oh, you know what? She's kind of right. But I love what she said about our expectations and how they don't they don't question it and they don't talk about what happened to the world like it is just a given. Yeah. Um I love what she said about that. No, and she's right about, you know, just like the plot machinations like the really the plot points of this movie Deckard investigating this trail all it does is lead us from set piece to set piece like that stuff is not interesting in its own it's like how do we get Deckard to a really cool crazy club with where a woman seemingly has sex with a robotic snake oh let's put some scales in a bathtub and he can follow that trail so we can get him to this really cool club you know like that's that's the logic this movie works so I think once you let go of like narrative satisfaction and you just drink it in as a series of cool set pieces and stuff like that's where the that's where the movie's strength lies right but i disagree with her i think i feel a lot when it comes to roy batty oh absolutely i feel so much for him she she did i didn't read this part because the review is very long but she said that rucker howard was hamming it up like his performance was like too loud no i like i think that's the whole point it's big it's over the top it's theatrical yeah it's a a robot who has these overwhelming feelings overwhelming and also absorbed probably like media and film and stuff mm-hmm. and he's like acting on these like it's like shakespearean it's larger than for life sure. like i'm all for it yeah should we do letterbox let's do it i have a half star review that says this movie puts the ass in classic <laughs> no wonder it was a box office flop i love that <laughs> um three and a half stars no offense but literally what the fuck is this about <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Half a star. Another half a star. Wanted to watch the one with Gosling, but for a better understanding of the universe, decided to start with this one. And my God, I'm 50 minutes in and nothing has happened in this fucking movie. It's not even as beautiful as they say it is. Some shots are even uncomfortable. What? 
It's just terribly boring. I'm convinced it's impossible to finish it. <laughs> God, if you can't finish Blade Runner. Why are you writing this in the middle of it? Like, people are so... I know. Here, I'll, I'll give a five star. Five stars. The way Harrison Ford slurps those noodles. Greater <laughs> sign, every Woody Allen film combined. <laughs> I also have a five-star review that says, a seminal achievement for sci-fi cinema, despite the many rough cuts this went through. Commonly cited as a boring opera, I could never get behind such an overlooked evaluation. The Dick novel this is loosely based on seldom relies on action, more so operating as a philosophical and contemplative reflection about our empathy, consciousness, and failing body. Mm. Although it's an extremely small novel focusing on one group, there's always this sense of a foreboding inevitability that is ginormous in scope. Mm. And then they finish by saying, yeah, I basically got it. Oh, oh, oh. Curiously, the film also dabbles in the lesser depressing question. Do electric owls dream of electric sheep? Aww. Uh, One star. This is a very long one, but I'm just going to cut to one paragraph. It's one star. Here's a test for you. Try to imagine Deckard outside of the film. What does he do with his free time? Having trouble? That's because he has no character. There's nothing there beyond Harrison Ford's superficial charms. He has no motivation for anything he does. He's simply a blank slate going through the motions of a generic police investigation. And even on that count, the film fails to deliver. The plot is glacially paced and lacking a single ounce of tension. That's interesting because... I, Lacking tension. Come I on. I mean, I, I don't really agree with that. The Deckard thing, like maybe a little bit, like uh, as yeah. we talked about, what is, why does he agree to do this? What is the threat that because he has nothing better to do? Mm. Uh, Walsh yeah. has over him. I don't know. I mean, because what is he doing before he gets called into this? We don't really know. Sitting and reading a newspaper and eating some noodles. Yeah, but nope. he was sick of the life. He, it's implied that he really didn't want to do this. Yes. Especially with the narration. Like, it starts by saying, I'm an ex-killer, a Blade Runner. I was <laughs> sick of all the violence. It literally, it starts with right. that narration. Why does he do this? You know, I, I there's a reason. A lot of episodes, we spend a majority of the time talking about character. This episode, we didn't because there's not there really... Isn't. Yeah. Uh, this is my last one. I think it's really funny. Three stars, a tranquilizer dart in movie form. <laughs> God. Try, they gave it three stars. Try Andre Rublev. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I like Andre Rublev. No, I mean, kind I do of. too. I do too. I kind of don't. I'm just saying that person who thinks that this is, <laughs> this a, tranquilizer is a tranquilizer should go watch a Tarkovsky. <laughs> oh my God. Anyways. Well, this was Blade Runner. We probably gabbed a little longer on this one, but I feel it's like there's just so, so much to talk look about. Look at my yeah. notes. Look how dense my notes are. It's just funny that we gabbed for so long, but we didn't discuss character. Because again, I, no character. I agree with that last I review. Like, he is a blank it. slate. And it does rely on someone like Harrison Ford bringing some gravitas to the role. For sure. Because he sure. is a nobody. Like, yeah, he's not, not interesting. Yeah. Um, Deckard is the least interesting part of Blade Runner. But he's Harrison Ford. But he's Harrison Ford. No, exactly. No, that's exactly it. I love watching him. That's it. I love watching him spit blood out into the sink as he's washing his face. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Last thing. Have you ever noticed how beat up he gets in this movie? Yeah, I love it. Every second he's getting this like catastrophic blow to his face 
and like really acting. He's all like with really Joanna reacting. Cassidy, where she's choking him with his tie. Yeah, and he's like, oh, like yeah, crazy. That's the charm of Harrison Ford. That's what like The Rock doesn't seem to understand. Is like you need Harrison, to show that you're in pain. Yes, every look at the Indiana Jones movies, whatever. Like or look at Star Wars, like Han Solo's frozen yeah, in carbonite. Yeah, like yeah. he's vulnerable. His scream before he gets frozen, or his scream when they're torturing him in Empire Strikes Back. His scream in here when they break his finger when uh, oh, Roy, Roy breaks yeah. his fingers and he has to pop him back into place. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> You oh. visibly just shivered. You did. Oh, you know. like jumped up. This like, last, this last part has been very um, not good for a non-visual medium. Yeah, us right now talking <laughs> about this. We've been jumping. Yeah. We've been moving. We've been yeah. reacting. I just did a backflip. Yeah, you guys missed it. Um, that was Blade Runner. I know. Next week, though, <laughs> what are we doing? We are doing Bicycle Thieves. Oh yay! Victoria De Sica. I'm so excited. Uh, special thanks to all of our listeners and especially those on Patreon at the highest level. But obviously, thank you to all of our Patreon members. But special thanks to John Pennington and Cynthia Fordwell at our Pauline Kale tier. The show would not be possible without you. Or Pauline Kale. Or Pauline Kale herself. That's yeah. true. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week. Until next week, I'm Greg. I'm Jackie. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Seen and Heard is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club, featuring Greg Kleinschmidt and Jacqueline Postagion. Theme music by Andrew Cox. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any questions, comments, or you just want to say hi, email us hello at seenandheardpod.com or visit our website, www.seenandheardpod.com.